Amen. So we try and do that once a month just to be reminded that there are real things happening in our lives and that the people sitting next to you are more than names, right? A lot of times in our sort of consumer-driven Western church culture, this whole thing that happens on a Sunday morning is about you. It's about you being entertained or, or you feeling like we want you to come back. And the truth is, church is not that at all, right? Church is where uh, we gather with other believers to be exposed, essentially, by the Holy Spirit, to be encouraged, to be convicted, to be known and to know people. Um, it's the assembly, the gathering that has been rescued from the world and sent into the world as the hands and feet of Christ. Over the past few weeks, we've started this little series. We've taken a break from the Gospel of John. We've started this little series that we usually do way back in the fall. We usually take a break once a year. We examine our hearts and we say, who is the church that God is calling us to be? What does the next year look like? We talk about the giving of our resources, of stewardship. We talk about all those pieces of our life that make us a community. And we usually do it way back in October. But we built out the back, and so we just kind of pushed this down the road. But it's a really important thing for us to do nonetheless. And so we're coming on the third week, the last week of that little series that we've entitled All of Me, as we've kind of examined using our approach to life, uh, the call of the church that we believe that God is leading us to become. And for those of you that don't know or that haven't been here in the past few weeks, our call, which is not all that different from any other church in our city's call, and we express it in these terms, to love God, love people, follow Jesus. A lot of churches have the very similar phrase because it comes directly from Scripture, right? And we used Matthew 22 as a launching point. We examine each of these pieces, love God. What does it mean that he's our first love? Love people. And then this morning, we're going to tackle that third piece. But we use Matthew 22 as that stepping off place because it's so apparent that this is where these truths come from. When the teacher of the law tried to pin Jesus down and get him trapped in his own words because they were so tired of the way that Jesus was threatening their lifestyle, they were so exhausted by the way that he was pushing all their boundaries, turning all these things upside down, they wanted to catch him in a lie, catch him in a blasphemy kind of a word where he spoke against the commandments of God, and they wanted a way to accuse him or at least turn the tide of the people's sort of approval from Jesus. And so they tried to trick him, right? And one of the lawyers, a Pharisee who was an ex in the law tries to trick Jesus with a question by saying, hey, what's the, the greatest of all the commandments, right? That was a trick question. And, and Jesus knows that, of course, because he's Jesus. And he basically says, the first, or the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And the second is like it, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets hang on these commands. We talked about at length how this idea of loving God and loving people is born out of this idea that, that loving God is our first love, that nothing comes in between us and our call to love him. Anything that does is idolatry. We explored all of that. We talked last week about what it means to fall in love with our second love, to love people the way that, that God loves people, the way that he sees them. And we talked about the idea of the Samaritan and we explored that parable and in our expression of what we want to be as a church that truly loves people. And each week, we, as we get to the end, we do these little vision points where we look at 2019 and we say, this is how we want to play these things out, right? And I'll go over those at the end as we go over the ones for this week. But this week, we're going to finish this thing up by looking at that third piece to our approach to life, which is follow Jesus. A lot of churches have these love God, love people, frontline pushback darkness, city presses, love the city. Ours is follow Jesus. Because for me, this singular verse where that idea comes from, turn my life upside down about 25 years ago. And, the, and the, the verse comes out of 1 John 2, 6, and it says this, forever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, if you let that verse actually sink into your heart a little bit, if you let its meaning truly sort of get in there and mill around, it really will mess up your life. Because basically what John is saying is that if any of us 
claim to be followers of Christ, any of us claim to have him in us or to be living in him, which is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to have Christ dwell in us, that we remain in him and he remains in us, as John 15 says, if any of us claim to be Christians, then we must walk as Jesus did. And I think it's both a literal and a metaphorical call. It's a, it's a metaphorical call to see the world the way that Jesus saw it, right? To, to see people the way that he saw people, to have the mind of Christ. But it's also a literal call. I deeply believe it's a literal call to put our feet in the places where Jesus put his feet or where he would put his feet, right? We talked a little bit about this a few years ago when we talked about the Samaritan woman and how Jesus went right through Samaria and he went places where the world just wouldn't go. And so following Jesus for us is the idea that if we're going to call ourselves followers of Christ, at some point in time, we have to actually be people, right, that put our feet in the places that Jesus put his feet. The problem is, is that most of us want to be sort of this costless Christian consumer. We want to listen to podcasts. We want to read. We want to do all those things. We want to attend a community that offers us all the pieces, but we don't want our following Jesus to actually cost us anything or at least anything we're not willing to part with, both spiritually, from a material standpoint, from an emotional standpoint. We want to live as costless Christian consumers. We just do. I do. I want to be just close enough to be able to see Jesus, but not enough for it to cost me my life. Following Jesus doesn't really give us that option. True Christ followers say, wherever you put your feet, I'll put mine. Wherever you lead, no matter how difficult the road or rocky the path or unlit it is, I will follow you. Everything I have belongs to you, and you are my God. And this is what we've been exploring in this series, all of me. We've talked about it in terms of the relationship that we have to people, the relationship we have to our Lord, the relationship we have to our finances. What does it look like to be a part of a church that I trust and I give our resources to? We've explored it from that standpoint. And so for the past few weeks, we've had these pledge cards out, which are really just a way of us thinking about the future. And I know what you're thinking. If you are here for the first time, you're going, dude, seriously, I mean, I show up one Sunday, you're asking for it. Listen, we're not really asking for your money at all. We really don't want your money. This church does not want your money. It doesn't want one, one single cent of it. What it wants is your heart to be fully committed to Christ. These pledge cards are ways that our members and our regular attenders help us think about the next year. Help us think about mission, help us think about giving, help us think about support and what we're going to engage the community with. And it's an important part of our life because it's how we set up what we believe we can and are called to do. So it's an important way of us thinking. So if you're here for the first few times, this really is not about you. And so I don't want you to think, oh man, I show up in the church, really just asks for my money. The truth is that we don't want it. The Lord will provide for this community with or without you. We're not concerned about that. We want you to surrender your life to Jesus, period. That's what this whole series is about. What if I gave the Lord all of me? Truly every little piece from my marriage to my thought life to the way I think about people to my work. What if everything that I had or that I believed I had, I truly understood belonged to Jesus? What would it look like to lay all that down? Well, this morning as we look at that last piece, we're gonna be talking about calling. What would it mean to actually hear the call of the Lord both as individuals and a community, and respond in a way that says, Jesus, I will follow you. My favorite example of all this in Scripture, which we're going to be in today, is, comes out of the book of Acts chapter 8. And about four or five years ago, we kind of looked at this when we explored Acts 8, or we actually explored the entire book of Acts. We got to Acts 8, and we talked about Philip and his call from the Lord and his, his engagement or the encounter that he has 
with this Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going to explore that through the idea of calling and response. Are we at a place where we can hear the Lord call and are we willing to truly respond to him? So if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in verse 26 this morning as we kind of get through all that front end to get us to the meat of where we're going to be this morning. What does it truly mean for us as individuals and for us as a community to follow Jesus, to truly put our feet where he puts his feet in terms of calling and our response. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then let's dive into that word together and we'll see what it says to us this morning. Lord, I do thank you for every life that's represented here, every heartbeat that you brought, every child, every man, every woman, every person that you brought into this place. I believe that they are treasured by you. God, that you love them and that you have a plan for their life and that more so, God, you want all of them, their heart, their soul, their mind. Lord, you want all of me. God, you desire for us to surrender our lives in totality to you, that you are the one true God and that we would say, Jesus, you get all of me. And so this morning, Lord, as we come and explore what it means to follow Jesus, we can only do it in light of understanding that we follow Jesus after we have surrendered our heart and our life to you. After we've said, God, I am a sinful, broken mess, and I need you. And that you wash over us and become our first love, not because we know how to love, but because you showed us how to love. You demonstrated that. And then you call us to love people, our neighbor, to love people the way that you love people, with this sort of relentless, intentional love. And then you call us in the middle of all of that to follow you. That if we would claim to follow Jesus, we would put our feet where he put his feet. That we would break ourselves away from our sort of costless Christian consumerism and say, I want to be someone that just says yes to Jesus. And so, Lord, as we open those ideas today, I pray that you would teach our hearts. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever that means, whatever you need to, to kind of let go of or just whatever you need to just whisper to the Lord, just Ask him to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every, more, every Sunday. We want to be in the habit of praying for the people around us. Pray for someone beside you or in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. Or maybe it's your spouse or maybe it's a friend. Just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. As we say, everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask you to take your word and to teach our hearts. Lord, we recognize that we gain nothing from your word until you reveal your truth to us. And so, God, we ask you to teach our hearts. We don't take our encounter with your word lightly. We take it seriously. We believe an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we pray that you would teach our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So I'll give you a little bit of the background in just a moment. But let's start in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And we're going to read this whole encounter. <clears throat> and then we're going to explore it in terms of call and response. So what God is calling Philip to do and how Philip responds and how that should shed light on both our own following Christ and our following Christ together as a community. This is what the text says, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian, a eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in the chariot reading from the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip to go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading from Isaiah the prophet. And he says, do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading from the passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who could speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And they traveled along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, and then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared as Otis and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So there's kind of a unique perspective you got to understand before we really get to this idea that is unfolding in Acts, where Philip is called by the Lord to go and go down to this road headed to Gaza and stand next to this chariot that has an Ethiopian eunuch in it. And the background you've got to understand is that all this is coming on the heels of the stoning of Stephen. Now, Stephen is the first martyr for the Christian faith, or at least the first recorded martyr that we have that died publicly for his faith in Christ. And we remember the story well because it happens just prior in the book of Acts. And standing there giving his approval is Saul, right? Paul. He's the up and coming Pharisee that's going to be leading the charge, arresting and capturing these Christians, trying to do away with this Christian movement called the Way. Well, on the day that Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out. We have that because Acts tells us. It says a great persecution broke out, and believers were scattered all over Judea and Samaria. So what the leaders did was they took the people that were playing key roles in this Christian movement and they scattered them all around. That means they took them and they moved them to other countries, other places, other regions to try and decentralize this. It was actually a common practice. When the Romans, when they would do it, when they would conquer a people group, they would take the artists and the scientists and the leaders of that community and they would move them and spread them hundreds of miles away because they believed that if they took the leaders and they moved them away from the people, the people wouldn't know how to kind of centralize and create a revolution. Well, the Jewish leaders had the same mentality, which is if we take these key people and we move them around the region, then the people won't know who to follow anymore. And so Philip found himself as one of those key people. And he found himself, after this persecution broke out, after Stephen was stoned, being moved to Samaria. And we know about Samaria. We talked about it last week, actually. The Jewish people hated the Samaritans, right? They were a mixed race. They basically intermarried with the, uh, the Assyrians that overtook that country or overtook the northern kingdom of Israel centuries before. And the Jewish people saw them as a mixed race and didn't want anything to do with them. They believed they were unclean people. But they scattered people, the Jewish leaders scattered people like Philip all through the area. And so Philip finds himself scattered in this persecution in Samaria. But something remarkable happens in Samaria. So when Philip finds himself there, it says that he begins to preach the word. 
And when he began to preach the word, the crowds heard what Philip was saying and they saw the miraculous signs they did. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out. Many paralytics were healed. The miraculous things were done. And so there was great joy and rejoicing in the city. So Philip gets thrown out into Samaria but he faithfully begins to proclaim the word and people are healed and they're, becoming to know, and they're coming to know Christ and ministry is exploding and it's almost like you could use the term revival. The people were going crazy and it says there was great joy in the city. So in other words, in this time of almost darkness, right, where, where there's this huge persecution on the church and they're scattering the leaders, God is doing something remarkable. And it seems really interesting that at this incredibly remarkable moment in time where Philip is the key person doing ministry in Samaria, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, it's time to go. And the angel of the Lord appears to Philip and he says, we actually want you to go and leave Samaria and go down to the desert road that leads to Gaza. Now, you got to understand a little bit of geography to kind of get this, but the, the road that led from Jerusalem to the area of Gaza was about 50 miles long. And it was, a de- it was a desert road. It was called the desert road for a reason because literally it led through the desert. But kind of a little known fact is that there are two cities of Gaza. The first city was one of the five major cities that was held by the Philistines that was overthrown by Alexander the Great hundreds of years earlier. That city is the one that the desert road led to. There's actually a new road that led from Jerusalem to the new city of Gaza, which was dozens of miles to the east. The desert road was essentially a road in the middle of the desert that led to a city that didn't exist. It was never traveled, got very little traffic. And so here's Philip engaging in really powerful ministry in Samaria. An angel of the Lord appears and says, we want you to go to that road that leads to the city that no one lives in, down to the middle of the desert. And that's about all the information that Philip gets. So Philip does just that. He goes. And he says he's headed down that road from Samaria, which was north of Jerusalem. So he travels all the way through Jerusalem, down that 50 miles towards Gaza. Somewhere in the middle of that road, he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. All right? So a eunuch kind of goes without explanation, unless you don't know what one is. But essentially, it's an emasculated, surgically male. All right? It's a castrated male. And oftentimes, these people, these men, were castrated because they were in charge of really important things like the queen, or the king's harem. And so they intentionally emasculated them that way so that they would not engage in behaviors with the queen or with the harem. Oftentimes those folks rose to power pretty quickly because they could be trusted, because they weren't going to be engaging in those said activities. And so Philip comes across this Ethiopian eunuch who is in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. Now, at that time, Ethiopia is not the country that you know it today. It was actually a massive region that was incredibly wealthy. And Candace was the queen of all of Ethiopia. Now, Candace is not actually her name. It's actually the title of all queen mothers that held the title queen. And the reason that she was in charge of all the treasury is because Ethiopians in that time, like Egyptians, believed that kings were descendants of gods, that they were sort of god beings. And therefore, it was below them to kind of rule the daily activities of the kingdom. They were gods and therefore should indulge in the lifestyle of gods. And so ruling the kingdom and the duties there and usually fell to the queen mother. 
who was named Candace for generations upon generations. And the point is, Candace is a really important person in charge of all the rulings of a massive wealthy empire called Ethiopia, much bigger than today's African country. Thus making this eunuch a really big deal. He's in charge of all the treasury, meaning all the money of the really wealthy region of Ethiopia. Important people, just to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So here comes this Ethiopian eunuch traveling from Jerusalem, right? And our text in Acts tells us that that was there to worship. Most likely this Gentile had had some kind of interaction with the Jewish faith and was up exploring worship or at the temple or something in Jerusalem, some kind of connection there, was traveling down the road and was reading the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 to be exact. It's a messianic text about Jesus and is reading these things about, so the, the, you know, the lambs of the shear is silent, all these kind of pieces. Well, Philip's walking down the road and the Holy Spirit shows up and says, go stand next to that chariot. Philip runs up next to the chariot and he just listens and he hears the eunuch reading and he pokes his head in the chariot. <clears throat> hey, you know what you're reading? How can I possibly understand this unless someone tells me? And Philip goes, oh, I'll tell you. Hops up in the chariot, invited to hop in there. Starts with that piece of text in, in Isaiah 53 and explains the gospel. Gets so far down the line talking about the gospel, they come across water and the eunuch says, I want to be baptized. Like, I'll believe in this Jesus. The one that we talked about in Isaiah, the one that you laid out the entire picture of salvation for, all the way to baptism. And they hop down out of that chariot, right? And they get, as, as he's baptizing this eunuch, the sort of major, cool, massive, Holy Spirit disappearing act flings Philip away. And he appears at Azotus, a city way down the road. And the eunuch just goes on his way rejoicing. Now, we know the story because it's part of our narrative, the book of Acts, about the incredible things that were happening in those days and about how the Holy Spirit was doing really powerful things and how he uses this, this person named Philip to kind of share the gospel with one of the most powerful people in one of the most wealthy countries in the entire region, right, who comes to know Christ. <clears throat> and then we see this a cool miracle where he gets whisked away and whatever and but what I really find amazing in this text for me, and, and I think for our community, is, is this idea of what does it mean to understand the call, of, the call of the Lord, to really follow Jesus, to hear the call of God, to follow him, and then what does our response look like? Because there's several things about this call that Philip gets that don't make a lot of sense. They don't resonate really well with where you and where I want our call from the Lord to be, right? Because the first part of this, this call is really inconvenient if not borderline ridiculous. I mean, Philip is in Samaria and ministry is going really well. People are coming to know Christ, sounds like by the dozens. In an area where people hated them, Samaritans were coming to know Jesus. There was great rejoicing in the city and gospel ministry was happening. In all of our understanding and our sort of Western terms, this was a thriving ministry, right? You would think that what would be happening is they would be building more things, right? In our culture, what we do is if we have ministry that's exploding like that and, and things are growing, well, hey, we need to add another campus. We got a bigger, bigger building, right? We got to add a family life center, right? We got to build a rock climbing wall for the kids. We got to do all the pieces. We got to pay our pastor more and add satellite campuses and, and put some things on and get new cups with our logos on and whatever. We have to grow with this thing. We got to capture the momentum while it's happening. And the last thing we want to do is get rid of Philip. I mean, he's a key celebrity in this whole thing. He's preaching the gospel and people are coming to know Christ. If we remove him, right, that can't happen. We've got to put him on every screen we have. 
He's the communicator of this. He is the central figure. He is the celebrity follower of Christ. That's what our Western culture tells us to do. That's why it's super inconvenient and kind of ridiculous that in the middle of all that, the Holy Spirit shows up and looks at Philip and says, I want you to go to the desert road that's never traveled to the city where no one lives. It's pretty inconvenient. God, I really got a lot of things that are happening here is what my heart would be saying. I mean, look, we've labored for seven years to even get people to show up and now they're showing up and you're telling me to leave. It's time to big builder, or, uh, big, build bigger or do different things. It's time to expand on this thing. For the first time, right, when things should be going bad, they were actually going really well. Why would you call us to leave now? The call seems really inconvenient and somewhat ridiculous from our mindset, right? The call is also really vague. It's actually really specific from the call standpoint, but really vague on the details, right? I mean, so all the Lord tells Philip is that I want you to go to leave Samaria, to go to that 50-mile-long road and just start walking it. He doesn't tell him anything. He doesn't tell him who he's going to meet, if he has a family or what his family should do if Philip has one. He doesn't tell him that there's going to be a salary down there waiting for him or that he's going to take care of all of his needs or there's a job at the end of that road. He doesn't tell him if he's going to live or if he's going to die. He just basically says, leave here, go down that road that walks in the desert that no one uses, the city that no one lives in. Crystal clear about that. No details. How long? Am I coming back? Do I need to pack things, right? These are all the questions that, of course, be railing through my mind. God, I need you to be more specific. I'm going to pray over it. I'm going to pray over it until you give me some details so that I know what it is that you're actually calling me to do so that I can get my heart ready or I can get the tools I need ready or I can raise the support or whatever it is. But God's call seems to be incredibly vague on the details. And finally, God's call is also really difficult like for us, I don't think we grasp the idea of what it would mean to go from Samaria to Jerusalem and then 50 or so miles down through the desert. There are no hotels, no gas stations, no water stops. It's a road that's not traveled. You got to take everything that you're going to need. There's bandits in the middle of all this. You remember in the first part, they're facing an incredible persecution against everyone who claimed faith in Jesus Christ. Ministry was happening in Samaria. This call to walk that road at that time was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly costly. <clears throat> when I think about my own life, and I think about the life of this church, and I think about calling, these are all very real things that come into my mind. What it's costing me, what it's costing my family. Why is that call so difficult? Or why is there no details to it? Or, or Lord, why is it coming at all the wrong time? God's call seems inconvenient, it seems vague, it seems complicated, it seems difficult. Those are all very true statements. But what's incredible in all this is, of course, Philip's response. Philip's response is really seemingly simple. The Holy Spirit says, go to the desert road that leads to Gaza. Okay? Verse 27, so he started out. Now, I know there's a lot we don't know here, and I know there's probably some more details in it, but from our understanding, the Holy Spirit, through an angel of the Lord, told Philip to go, and so Philip started out. 
He didn't ask a ton of questions. He didn't ask for all the details. He just went. He just went. He just started out. And I find this remarkable because in order for most of us, myself included, to really believe it's a call from the Lord, we have to have levels of confirmation. So God presses on my heart. He says, Trevor, I want you to do this. I recognize that. I feel it. And so I begin to fleece it out. I'm going to ask people to pray for me. I'm going to consult his word. I'm going to spend some time in my own life praying for him. I'm going to sit down and talk to my wife. We're going to go through it. We're going to spend months and months and months trying to discern the call I have from the Lord is actually a call from the Lord. Most of the time, me asking people to pray for it is just me trying to kick down the can when I kick down the road when I really don't want to do. It's fascinating, right? God's calling Philip out of this seemingly great ministry thing to something much lesser. Now, of course, Philip's going to end up sharing the gospel with this incredibly powerful person, but just one person, considering all the great joy of ministry that's happening here, right? Seems like lesser. As a side note, when I think about calling, especially people involved in vocational ministry, the, the call never is down, right? People are always called up. They're called to bigger churches, better salaries, bigger growth points, bigger levels of influence. I can count on, the, on two fingers in my whole life of 30 years of basically engaging in ministry on some level that I know somebody that's been called down. Smaller church, less money, Right? But Philip just goes. He just goes. And as he's going, he actually continues to listen. He doesn't demand that God gives him all the details then. He says, God has called me. I'm setting out. And as he goes, he listens. And he hears two really important things. He's walking down the road, not knowing what's coming next, not knowing what's there on every bend. He's just listening. And the Holy Spirit shows up again and says, you see that chariot? Go stand next to it. So Philip is listening enough to the Lord as he's following the Lord to say, God, what is it that you have for me? And God says, I'll give you the next step, which is to go and stand next to that chariot. Philip hears the Lord because he's listening to the Lord. And he runs up next to the chariot. He doesn't ask who's in it. Or are they going to kill me? Or is it a bandit or whatever? He just says, okay. And he runs up next to the chariot. The Lord doesn't tell him what to do. Doesn't give him all the details. But he hears the person in the chariot reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He hears it. He's listening to the eunuch read out loud. And then he speaks. He sticks his head around that corner or whatever that looks like into that chariot. And he says, do you have any idea what you're reading? And he uses that moment to begin to talk to that person about Jesus. This is the remarkable thing about this call for me, right? God's call, not always convenient. God's call, not always full of details, right? God's call, not always safe in terms of our worldly perspective. And yet Philip, in the middle of all that, he goes and he listens and he speaks if I could capture something I desire deeply for my life, it would be this. It would be that I'd be so in tune with the Holy Spirit that I would listen to his voice. And when he called, no matter how complicated it was or how difficult it would be, then my initial response would be to go. Yes, Lord, I will, I will follow you. No matter how vague it was, that I wouldn't beg for details so that I could feel comfortable, that I wouldn't beg for details so that I could explain it to the people that I'm in, most indebted to, to explain to them why God's calling me this. I, I just want to be able to say, God, I trust you. And as I go along that way, I want to listen for your voice. I want to believe that you will provide. I want to believe that you are faithful enough to never leave me nor forsake me, right? 
And then even though that road may be difficult, may be challenging, might be dangerous, might be unknown, that I would be at a place where I would say, I just trust you and you are enough for me. And whoever I come across or wherever you lead me, I just want to talk about Jesus. Now, some of you in here may be dealing with some things like that where God has called you to something specific. Maybe it's a huge career change. Maybe it's something small like visit with your coworker. Maybe you need to forgive your mom. Maybe the call on your life is to actually begin to work to reconcile your marriage. That you know that God is calling you to let go of some things, to begin some counseling, to do some other things. Or maybe the call on you is to quit this behavior, this thing, this lie that you've bought into. It doesn't always have to be a call to travel 60 miles into the desert. Sometimes God's calls are so clear and they're so easy, but they're so poignant on our heart that it's as much as I've got to let go. I've got to quit believing that lie or engaging in this thing. Following Jesus truly means that we're willing to hear that call, right? That we're willing to go no matter how difficult or vague, we're willing to trust Jesus in the middle of all that. As a community, that's where I want our hearts to be, right? I want to be at a place where the call of the Lord matters to us and that we don't weigh out every call with perfect rationale. That we don't weigh out the list of pros and cons all the time or the ROI or return on investment and say, is that the best use of our dollars? Sometimes we just say, Jesus, we're just going to go where you lead. And if no one comes, then that's all right. Because you said to go. These are your resources. These are your things. This is your space. Like everything about it is yours. And we want to trust you with it. And we want to go. And we want to send. And we want to follow you. Whatever it is the Lord is calling you to, however small or however big, quit fighting him on it. Trust that he is who he says he is and go. Listen while you walk. Pray, know him. And believe that the God who called you is the God that will hold you. So as we think about these things and how they've unpacked in 2009, 2019, I'll do these really quickly. We talk about the vision pieces. Two weeks ago, we talked about the idea of um, depth, <clears throat> that we want to be growing in the depth of knowledge of God's word, depth of relationship with Jesus and with other people, and depth of involvement, right? Last week, we talked about the idea of students. One of the things we're going to focus on in 2019 is students, those that we have, right? Uh, our, our students that are already in our space, those that we long for, middle school and high school kids that we want to pursue with the gospel, right? And those we feel called to chase, health science center students, college-age kids, like we want to have a heartbeat that reaches these people. It doesn't mean we don't care about others. It just means in 2019, we want to be focused on trying to be intentional about reaching those groups of people, providing fellowship and opportunity for them to grow. From our middle school students, our high school students, and college kids to our own children, we want to be intentional about developing disciples, develop partnering with parents. We talked about all those things last week. Quickly, this last piece for us is the idea of calling. So we've got deaf students calling. In 2019, we want to really focus on a few things, right? We want to focus on being a church that is, understands our calling to support. We want to be a supporting church that supports missionaries and organizations and like-minded people that are gospelly driven. We want to give our resources and our time and our energy to support those efforts in our city and around the world. Those of you who have been with us for very long know that when we first planted 
A few years ago, we were committed to start at 10% of every dollar that we had come in that we'd give to mission, that our goal would be to be at 50%. That 50% of every dollar that came in was going directly out the door, engaging in mission and in gospel-centered movements, right? So here we are a few years later. This year, we've set our sights. We've got our, our mission budget at 16%. We're committed to raising it at minimum 1% to 2% a year until we hit that 50%. We believe that we're called to use our resources to support and engage gospel ministry missionaries and people that are engaged in the gospel in the world. We have 10 different missionaries that we support. Um, doesn't mean we don't want more. It just means the ones that are in our lap. They're all on our website. You can look at them. You can pray for them. We have folks from everywhere from North Africa to Norman that we're engaged in supporting, that are doing ministry around this country, around the city, around the world. We want to prayerfully and financially be a ministry and a church that supports people's callings. You come and say, I believe that God is calling us to do this. We want to be your biggest fan, right? We want to understand our, our, our kind of calling to send. We want to be a church that sends people, not just missionaries into the world, but people, we want to send students into college campuses. We want to send you into your new workplace. We want to pray you into your new city. We want to send you into different areas in the city that you feel called to do ministry. We want to send people that God is empowering into the world. We want to be your prayer force. We want to be that group that comes alongside you, that walks alongside you, that engages with you, that gives you the support and help you need. You feel called to do this. We want to empower you and send you. We want to be your backbone, your prayer support right here in this community. You feel called to work with a certain people group? We want to be a part of supporting that. That can mean anything, but we want to take seriously our call to send people into the cracks and crevices of culture, whether that be in your workplace or in your home or in your neighborhood. We want to support it. You want to get something going in your neighborhood? We want to support you. In your school, in our community, up and down these streets, we want to be about that. You feel like God may be calling you and your family to do something totally radical, we want to be a part of that too. We want to take seriously our, our calling as a church to send people. And then finally, we want to take seriously this year, especially refocus our own vision and our own calling to go. Part of what we got entangled in the past few years as we worked on getting new space was that we exchanged parts of our vision for creating a footprint in this community, but we want to be a church that is continually pushing ourselves outside the walls of the very ends of the earth. We want to partner with our missionaries when invited to go and support them in their ministry around the world. We're not just looking to grab our bags and go on uh, you know, Christian-based tourism. What we're looking to do is partner with our missionaries and people around the globe that invite us to come be a part of what they're doing and go and support them, right? We send some folks, uh, Tom and Ruth Ann Portman with David and Reagan Ta to Thailand to experience what that vision trip is going to look like. We've got some folks in North Africa and in France. We're looking at partnering with those and sending people from our church when invited to be a part of the ministry and support and mission around the world. You're going to hear more about that in this upcoming year. All that to say, all of these things are there because we want you to understand that the church you're a part of has a unique and a deep vision and calling from the Lord. And we take that very seriously. Next week, what we're inviting you to do, if you are a member of this community or a regular attendant, we're inviting you to please take that pledge card home, pray over it. Say, God, what do we believe our family is called to commit and do? How does this impact what we think about and how we want to be? Can we commit to this year to doing this? We're going to invite you to bring all those pledge cards next week. We're going to have an opportunity to, to bring those forward and worship the Lord as we give him commitments from our own heart. Return to him what truthfully is his anyway. Again, that's just for our regular attenders and members. We don't want you to feel uncomfortable if you're here for the first few times or if you just don't 
want to give, right? That's totally fine. It's between you and the Lord. But all that over these past three weeks to say, we want to be a church made up of individuals where God gets all of us, all of me, all of my heart and my soul and my mind, the way I love God, the way I love people, my first and second love, driving how I follow him into the world, right? This is the church I want to be a part of. It's a church I believe we're called to be. And it's who I believe that you are called to be. And it's who I long to be. As we close our time in worship, let's ask the Lord just to press on our hearts the things that he is convicting us and the things that he wants us to hear and respond to. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for the opportunity just to know your word. I know that's a lot of information, more so than normal for us because there's just so much to get through. I'm grateful for the patience, but more so, God, I'm just grateful that your word is living and active. So, Lord, I pray that over the next few minutes as we close our time in worship, you would convict us and empower us to be a church that takes seriously our calling, our calling to fall in love with you because you loved us first, our calling to love people the way that you love people, and our calling to truly follow you, that if we claim to live in you, we would walk as Jesus did. That calling is not always convenient, it's not always full of details, and it's not always safe. But the response that Philip had to go and to listen and to speak is what I long for in my own life and what I know that you call us to as a church. Lord, let us hear your cry. Hear our worship as we close our time this morning, praising you for rescuing us, redeeming us, and sending us into the world. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.